So today we return to our fifth and final study in the issue of the future of Israel uh, reconsidered. And I say in this final installment, as I've said, uh, hopefully in all of them, that this is a representation of the work of Dr. James B. Jordan and a similar article that he wrote some years ago. And I'm also weaving in insights from his friend and co-theologian, Dr. Peter Leithart, <clears throat> in addition to what we read in the text of Scripture, of course. So we have up to this point established the background and the issues relating to the question of what Paul writes in Romans uh, 9 through 11 regarding the future of Israel. And let me reiterate that part of the challenge we face as we come to these texts is that too often, regardless of what our theological or biblical tradition is, we come front-loaded, pre-loaded with ideas and assumptions about what this text is talking about, rather than starting there on the ground of the text where it was written and interacting with all of those things first, and then backing away and saying, okay, what does this mean for me today? So that translates into people assuming that Paul is talking about a future block conversion of the nation of Israel, which, again, this is an example of the problems we face. When we talk about nation of Israel today, people, by default, are going to associate that with the modern political state of Israel, which frankly bears no connection whatsoever to the Israel mentioned in either the New or the Older Testaments. So <clears throat> we have these challenges. And as being good students of the Bible, we have understood, I think properly, that a partial preterist interpretation of the things spoken of in the Gospels and the New Testament about what was happening in the immediate future of that generation of people who lived during the age of the apostles regarding the um, return of Christ in judgment, the destruction of the temple that Jesus prophesied and, and proclaimed in Matthew 24, Luke 21, that all that would happen within the generation of the lifetimes of those people who were living. So, in other words, we want to see how this looks like in a product preterist interpretation regarding all Israel will be saved. Is that something Paul is projecting way off into the future? Uh, parenthesis, probably our time. Or is this something that was really being focused on in his time and his generation? So <clears throat> let's understand a few things as we launch into this. In Romans 11 and verse, uh, excuse me, Romans 11 verse 2 and verse 5, God, uh, Paul writes, God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. There is a remnant, verse 5, according to the election of grace. We're going to be primarily focusing on Romans 11 with a few other supporting passages. So let's understand, Paul says that those of Israel whom God elected or predestined to grace are not cast away. This is another one of the overarching themes that is either not known, not cared about, or just simply cast aside in talking about this issue. According to Christ Jesus, according to the message of the kingdom, who is Israel today? And who are those who are part of the grace of God? It is the electing and predestinating action of the sovereign God that determines those things. Paul himself is an evidence of that fact. He, he talks about this. I, you know, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and yet here I am proclaiming Christ Jesus. Secondly, as Jesus predicted in Matthew 24, Israel as a nation is cast off for a period of time. And then thirdly, we see here there is a remnant according to the election of grace. So the church, as the new Israel of God, has a continuity. 
has a connection with the Old Covenant Church. And all of this is part of God's foreordained plan. His eternal decree determines all things, and as a result, he has prepared a remnant among the Jews to establish that continuity of his covenant. Now, in Romans 11, verse 6, Paul writes that that remnant um, is not faithful because of its own character. It's purely by the grace of God. If God's grace did not govern and remake them, those people would be unregenerate, and grace would be no more grace, according to him. Now, if you have your Bible open, look at Romans 11, verse 7. I'm reading this from the ESV. Paul says, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. So they become stone-like. Now, the New King James Version has that they were blinded. Uh, some other, A few other translations may have it that way. We're talking here about the Greek word porao. It means to be hardened or calloused or thick-skinned. And um, they failed uh, where the elect, those who were hardened failed, where the elect succeeded. As someone said, they have uh, not failed because they've been hardened. Rather, they have been hardened because they have failed. And in Romans 11, verse 12, Paul looks ahead to the restoration of the Jews among the elect. Um, their fall enriched the world. Their fullness means that all the remnant of Israel, not Israel as a nation, being reborn as a nation in 1948, that's not what he's talking about. Paul tells us that God in history will break down the old barriers, the kingship of Christ and his dominion will triumph over all things. Israel's apostasy serves God's purpose because he ordains that all things shall work together for good in his kingdom. Now, <clears throat> listen as we consider verses 13 to 14. He says, Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. So there is in these verses itself, a definite reference to at least some aspects of Israel, Israel's salvation in the time of the Apostle Paul. I mean, everything he's written in those verses speaks of his interest in what was taking place in his own time. It's the Jews that he knows that he wants to make jealous. Now, in a little bit, we are going to see how these things indeed began and were taking place in that time frame. Now, our best indica indication is that Paul was executed by the Roman government around A.D. 65. And um, that was during the time of the Emperor Nero. But we need to realize that although the Jews had been expelled by Emperor Claudius, they had been returning slowly but surely, following uh, Claudius uh, leaving the position of emperor and Nero taking over. Paul's entire ministry was being pursued with the looming judgment that was coming in A.D. 70, as talked about in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Mark 13. The temple is going to be destroyed and the powers of heaven are going to be shaken. And Paul knows that what happens in Jerusalem doesn't stay in Jerusalem. It will have a major impact even as far as Rome. And so he wants to prepare this church at Rome, which is made up of a lot of Jews and a lot of Gentiles, to face that imminent judgment as well as their own final judgment before Christ. So these chapters in Romans have to do with the events of that first century. Paul writes about circumstances regarding his colleagues at that time in his own day. That's, listen to it again. I'm speaking to you, Gentiles, 
He's not pointing his finger in the year 2024. He's talking about the people in that immediate context who would hear him. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to make my fellow Jews jealous. Friend, a Jewish person living in Tel Aviv today is not a fellow Jew of Paul. And the same with any Jew anywhere else on the face of the earth today. These people can't be made jealous by anything written in the New Testament. I mean, of course, by God's grace they may be. But now he's talking about something totally different than what the modern spin has been put on these verses. I mean, it's clear, isn't it, that his own ministry is a part of the solution to that particular dilemma that he's confronting in that time. So this is not primarily a promise of a distant future uh, restoration uh, of, of Jews or, or Israel. Now, certainly it's possible that, and I'm quoting more or less Dr. Peter Leithart here, that thousands of years separate this first century problem from some, uh, for some future still solution. But that kind of gap in time would have to be shown within the text somewhere, wouldn't it? But there's no gap there. There's nothing there like that. Look at verse 26 of chapter 11. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. And as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. The all Israel refers to the fullness of the Gentiles and of the Jews. If your theology is broken and defective to where you think there's some two-track plan that God has for one group of people, but a different plan for another group of people, you're not reading the Bible correctly. You're not understanding what God's Word says from beginning to end. Now, Paul is citing here in Isaiah 59.20, and I'll read that passage, And a Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob, who turn from transgression, declares Jehovah God. Christ is the Redeemer who pays the price to set his people free. And E.J. Young, in his great magisterial three-volume commentary on the book of Isaiah, he noted, this is a promise, and I'm quoting him, not to the nation as a whole, but to the seed according to election, the true Israel. So while Paul's concern here is the salvation of Israel, it is the fullness of God's kingdom that is uppermost in his mind. And in verse 27, he says, and this will be my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. Excuse me, that, he's quoting that passage. And that has reference to Jeremiah 30, 31, 31. It's also referenced in Hebrews 8, 8 and 10, 16. It has reference to the worldwide mission of Israel to all peoples and all the places of peoples on this, in, in God's covenant. This is the fulfillment that Paul is referring to here. When God takes away our sins, then our response must be faithfulness and obedience, and that means that all Israel, Jew and Gentile, have now the duty of dominion under God and in service to his kingdom. Now, if you have your Bible, you can do this. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. I'm going to read it from the ESV, Ezekiel 16, verses 52 to 55. This is an important passage relating to this issue about a future restoration and what that technically means. Here the prophet Isaiah, he's accused the nation of Judah, the, of the ten tribes, Judah, and her leaders as being more evil and corrupt than the, either Sodom or Samaria. But look here at what he says in these verses, Isaiah 16, 52 to 55. Bear your disgrace, you also, for you have intervened on behalf of your sisters, that's a reference to Sodom and Samaria, because of your sins in which you acted more abominably than they. 
They are more in the right than you, so be ashamed you also, and bear your disgrace, for you have made your sisters appear righteous. I will restore their fortunes, both the fortunes of Sodom and her daughters, and the fortunes of Samaria and her daughters, and I will restore your own fortunes in that midst, that you may bear your disgrace and be ashamed of all that you've done, uh, becoming a consolation to them. I'm going to end it there. So the point is that the restoration that's being talked about here is moral, it is spiritual, it is not national, it is not ethnic, and it certainly is not political. I say that because, again, the, the tendency of our modern dispensational mindset, and even some Reformed, is that the modern state of Israel has some connection with any of this in Romans 11 or what I just read in Ezekiel. It does not. Nothing that Paul says here has any reference whatsoever to the restoration of Israel as a political state, either back then or now, especially since his main concern is with Christ Jesus and his kingdom. John Calvin, in his commentary on Romans, said, I extend the word Israel to all the people of God. End of quote. So God is not, in this Ezekiel passage, expressing regard or concern for reprobate nations, whether they're Jew or Gentile. They're all under his judgment. But in terms of the saving of, quote, all Israel before A.D. 70, and I'm going to be winding it up with these verses to hopefully show you that the text of Scripture themselves bear witness to this truth, or at least I'll say this possibility, that what Paul refers to in Romans 9-11 through is something that happened prior to the final destruction of Judaism and the Jewish temple in A.D. 70. The saving of all of Israel in that generational period from A.D. 30 to A.D. 70. We know it was already taking place from the book of Acts. This was well underway even then. Listen to these verses from Acts 4, verses 1 through 4. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But now notice this, Acts 4, verse 4. But many of those who had heard the word believed. Now this means Jews. And the number of men came to be about 5,000. A massive conversion of Jews in that time. And then if we move over to Acts chapter 21, 18 to 90, there's another example of this. Uh, Acts 21, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. They're, they're in Jerusalem now, having a, a, a presbytery meeting of sorts. And after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God, and they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So already this massive conversion of the elect among the Jews was taking place. It's right there in Scripture. And in terms of provoking the Jews to jealousy, well, that too is mentioned in more than one place, but I'll focus on this. Anyone remember what we were told in Acts chapter 17? You know, Paul and uh, Silas, I believe it is, they're, they're ministering, and it says, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. Note that. And Paul went in, as was his custom. Again, this is Acts chapter 17, verses 1 through 5. Paul went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving 
that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, brackets, Jews, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. Devout Greeks meaning these Gentiles who were God-fearing. They believed in the true God. But now notice, but the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And then continue on verse 6, And when they could not find them, they dragged them, Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down came here also. And Jason has received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people of the city and authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. But the key thing here to remember is that this provoking of the Jews to jealousy is already taking place. So is the mass conversion of Jews. It's already taking place. It's right there in the book of Acts and scattered in other places throughout the New Testament. Well, I'm going to end this um, study, this lengthy study, these five segments uh, here and see if there are any questions or comments. But uh, taken as a whole, our five-part series, I think, uh, gives powerful persuasive evidence to at least consider, if not understand, that what Paul is talking about in Romans 9 through 11 was part and parcel of those momentous events leading up to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, um, and that the thing that he refers to, at least, is now in our past, but moving forward, we have the responsibility of pray, proclaiming the message of the kingdom to all kinds of people, Jew or Gentile, anyone of, of any stripe, so that they too may be believing and become a part of Christ's kingdom. All right, let me just see if there are any questions or comments here.